Hey everyone, welcome back to Crisis the Cure. We are continuing our Tulip series, and we are continuing the historical points of interest. Last week, we introduced the series, gave you a little bit about uh, what the limitations are, what you should expect, my goals for the series. And I'm just going to restate one of the goals real quick right here is that um, even if you find that this is all into the weeds and you don't get anything out of it in terms of, um, you know, picking a position, I want you to be able to at least get out of this the glorious grace of God in the gospel, regardless of what position you pick. I hope that, like, when we talk about sin or the atonement or regeneration or how God is bringing us to glory and how we are united to Christ. I hope that those discussions will elicit in you a worshipful heart and devotion, uh, regardless again of where you fall on this issue by the end of the series. Um, make sure you listen to episode one to understand the broad outline and the limitations of this. I, I'm not going to restate them every time. So I, I might restate that every time, but I'm not going to restate the outline or the limitations every time. But they are important because some of you are going to be like, well, why didn't you include X, Y, and Z in these other episodes? The reason's already been stated. I'm not going to beat that drum more than I have to. So before we begin, remember that if you're a patron, you have the full notes for this episode. As a patron, it is one of your perks to have the full show notes um, with the outline. It's a little bit prettier, and you have all the footnotes. And so make sure that you go pick that up, and um, really, you just have to be in the, the minimal tier to pick that up. And if you... Enjoy Crisis Cure, if Crisis Cure has blessed you, and if you want to help push forward the materials that um, I've been producing through Crisis Cure, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the cure. Really, um, Patreon helps us fund for the hosting for the website, for the podcast. It helps me um, have a amount of storage for the PDFs, for the graphics. It helps, obviously, to pay for the time that it takes to put together this material, and this material is being used internationally in various congregations by pastors, congregants, small groups, etc. And it's, it's a blessing to be a part of that. If you would like to be a part of that too, if you find the approach here to be something worthy of supporting, pray about it first, please, and then consider becoming a patron. Anyway, so in the last week's episode, we talked about the era before Pelagianism. And there is a difficulty with saying, well, the early church believed X, Y, and Z. Because really, whenever we talk about stuff like that, we're sampling certain individuals in certain geographical areas. And so we don't know all of the details. That's just the way it goes. Because um, the way the documents survive, whether or not things were pinned down to, be, to begin with and everything else. So we talked about the pre-Pelagianism um, era, if you will. Briefly summarize bird view, generalizations, so on and so forth. We talked about how there's difficulties in decisively aiming for particular positions from their particular views. Um, some would say that they held to semi-Pelagianism. Some would say that they were straight up Pelagians. I, I don't believe that there's enough information to really know, to be honest. Um, there Again, there is big emphasis on the human will um, in terms of responsibility and morality, but how they understood human will in relation to both divine sovereignty. It probably was a little bit more libertarian free will. And on the flip side of that, we don't really know how they viewed corruption of man in the fall of Adam 
in light of divine grace, you know, which one comes first and what is necessary for man to be able to make a movement towards God and so on and so forth. So there's limitations there. So today we're talking about Pelagianism, and I'm sure we'll get past that and talk about a detour on monergism and synergism. That said, each episode of the series is going to be roughly 25 to 30 minutes. We are going to stop when it comes to logical breaks, and so it could go over that if I'm still talking on a particular section, but I want to keep it within that time frame because it makes it easier on folk. So let's talk about Pelagianism. So whenever we talk about the soteriological controversies, remembering that um, soteriology is, again, those doctrines dealing with salvation. The first real soteriological controversy, I would say, is around Pelagius. And and there's uh, controversy within the controversy. But first, uh, Pelagius was a British monk who would be at odds against Augustine in the 5th century. And remember, the 5th century is 401 to 500 um, AD, obviously. Now, current scholarship is debating how much of the arguments and uh, polemics, right, against Pelagius were correct in their assessments of his actual teachings. Um, there's been significant evidence that Pelagius suffered much due to straw men and misrepresentations over and against what he actually taught. Um, and the traditional understanding, however, would just say that, well, Pelagius taught what he was charged with. So we're going to actually follow that traditional articulation while keeping in mind that Pelagius himself may have not taught these doctrines. But regardless, the doctrines, regardless of whether or not Pelagius actually held to them, were condemned by Christians regardless. So while, while Pelagius may be vindicated, kind of like Nestorius, his doctrines were not, or the doctrines he was charged with were not. So Nestorium is still heresy. Pelagianism is still heresy. They're still wrong even if that's not really what they taught. It's a shame that that happened in history. It just goes to show that things don't really change because if you look at gracious Christian Twitter, I'll tell you what, something's never changed. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Um, so according to the traditional articulation, Pelagius taught that there was no change in the nature of man from the fall of Adam, okay? Pelagius, contrary to Augustine, denied that man inherited any corruption or guilt from Adam's sin in the garden. Now, the concept of passed on guilt and corruption is typically denoted as original sin. To put it another way, typically original sin is conceived as the notion that all humans are born with a corrupt nature and the guilt of Adam's transgressions in the garden because of his disobedience at the fall, right? So we're talking Genesis 3. What occurs in Genesis 3 and the result of Adam's first sin? Now, it's worth saying that in some views, original sins holds this idea of original corruption without original guilt. There's a specific name for that. We'll talk about that later, but that's an important distinction is that not all articulations of original sin include original guilt. This view holds that men inherit the corruption of Adam, that is a sinful nature that is inclined to sin, but not Adam's guilt. And Adam's guilt in this context is this idea that men inherit the guilt of Adam's sin itself. So whenever Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. Um, so some views of original sin deny that original guilt, but hold to original corruption. All positions hold to some 
form of original corruption. Well, you would you would hope so, but there's a lot in modern evangelical circles that do not hold that. Uh, and a lot of a lot of sidebars coming to my mind today. Anyway, so this view again says that people are guilty only from the sins that they commit themselves. Now, the manner in which Adam passed on corruption and or guilt is articulated in various ways, yet uh, Christendom has recognized original corruption as basic Christian theology. All men are born sinful except the incarnate Son of God, unless you're a Catholic and then you believe that Mary was also born without corruption. So how one explains how the incarnate Son of God was born without corruption will link to how they understand Adam's corruption and how it passes on to other human beings. So as we are talking about historical theology, the primary point of focus is upon the notion that Pelagius put forward. That is, man is neither guilty nor corrupt because of Adam. That's the key takeaway so far. So from here, Pelagius taught that humans were born in moral uprightness and could merit salvation without any grace or aid of grace from God. And so these teachings of Pelagius, or the alleged teachings of Pelagius, whichever position, would actually be condemned ecumenically at the Council of Ephesus in 431. And so the notion that man is without corruption from sin or able to merit salvation by his own freedom apart from God's grace, regardless of whether or not the Pelagians or Pelagius held to such teachings, was ecumenically out of the question considered against basic Christian doctrine. Now, to better grapple with the historical context, we can look to the other side of Pelagius, which is Augustine. Um, Augustine would argue that Adam is enslaved to sin in such a way that he now seeks sin and sees sin as being good. Instead of having the inclination to follow the will of God, man desires to align with the devil and seek after sin. Augustine posits that Adam fell and after the fall cannot escape sinning, described as not able not to sin. Just as well, Adam and Eve lost their freedom and moral integrity while also gaining death when they disobeyed God's directive. And so Adam had lost true freedom and true life and became enslaved to the powers of sin and death at the fall. Now, while Adam has been corrupted along with his subsequent children, that is, all of mankind, this does not remove from man the freedom of choice. Quote, Even as a slave, man retains a certain freedom in that he freely does the bidding of sin. And of course, that's uh, Peterson and Williams, Why I'm Not an Arminian, page 24, summarizing Augustine's view. Adam still makes free choices, but he freely chooses sin. Put another way, the human will, having been corrupted in the fall, is free, but this freedom is limited to that man's nature, which has sinful corruption. It has an orientation towards disobedience. So Augustine will define free will as simply doing what one wants to do. And quoting Williams and Peterson again, quote, Augustine can hold that the fallen man is free to sin, but not free not to sin, yet still possesses free will because as a sinner, Adam wants to sin. The will is both free and unfree. Hence, Augustine is able to speak of the captive free will, end quote. So Augustine would teach that man is hopelessly lost and incapable of doing anything to save himself. Grace, which is external to us, must come first. So the will must be repaired and changed by grace so that man can obediently respond to God's call. For Augustine, this grace that comes before 
which is called prevenient grace or preceding grace, is that which repairs the will and allows man to accept the gospel call. This is typically called monergism. And mono, of course, means one, and it means one work, meaning that regeneration or conversion is wholly dependent upon God's grace without the cooperation of man. Stated another way, historically, and that's that's the key operative word here because we're going to talk about that here in a second. Monergism means that the Holy Spirit is the only agent in regeneration and conversion. In monergism, man does not cooperate in conversion. And this is opposed to synergism. Synergism teaches that man cooperates with God in order to be converted. A lot of times, the discussion on monergism and synergism goes way beyond conversion or regeneration. It goes into, well, you know, sanctification, monergistic, or synergistic. And then it starts blurring a lot of lines. Historically, when we're talking about monergism and synergism, that's what they mean. We can say that Pelagius was monergistic. He was monergistic towards man. It was the one work of man that merited salvation, right? For Augustine, he was monergistic in the sense of it was holy God's grace without cooperation of man that led to conversion or regeneration. So I think that's a key issue um, that honestly, the, the moner- we'll talk about monergism and synergism here in a second, but it really does cloud discussions and I, and I find them not very helpful anymore. So for Augustine, all men, because of Adam, are born as children of wrath, and God is under no compulsion to save anyone. Yet, in his mercy, God gives prevenient grace to some, but not all. And for Augustine, the reason for this is unknown. It's the secret judgments of God. So at this point, we find that God elects, that is, chooses some to be saved, and this is typically called particular predestination. It is particular, that is, um, it is the election of individuals, and predestination, they're predestined to salvation. Now that said, um, Augustine did also hold that some of the elect could fall away from the faith in a type of temporal election that is lacking in the gift of perseverance. So perseverance was a gift that some of the elect had, but some of them did not have. Now the question that's usually raised at this point consists of the following. Does God also elect or choose the unregenerate or unbelievers and predestines them to hell? Now, whether or not Augustine held to a yes or no on this question is debated. Now, Peterson will say that Augustine said no, that God only elects the regenerate and passes by the unregenerate, leaving them in a current state justly. So it's the difference between actively predestining people to hell or passively predestining to hell. And the difference is, is this. Either God chooses actively those who are going to hell at their, you know, before the foundations of the world, or He just passes over them, leaves them in their state, and just chooses not to give them grace. So it does make a difference whenever you start thinking about the the technicalities of it, but we're not going to go into that right now. Now, others would argue that he held to what is called double predestination, again, where God both actively elects the regenerate to salvation and the unregenerate to hell. Regardless of whether or not Augustine held to it, we can press on, and those concepts are now introduced So this is our brief detour on monergism and synergism, which may take up the rest of this episode, but I think it's important, so that's why I included it. We'll see. And this is is a big disclaimer. This is my opinion. After my research, it has become my opinion that monergism and synergism are ultimately unhelpful terms to utilize on the subject of soteriology. And the reasons for this are namely because of how the terms are not understood in the same way across the board nowadays and how they have been utilized in polemics, that is, uh, in in arguing or trying to bolster one's position, right? 
So let me give you the reasons why I don't think they are helpful terms anymore unless you have these really like, these are defined, we agree on the definitions, now let's talk. So for example, it is often asserted that synergism is a type of cooperation between two equals, the two equals being man and God. Now that would necessitate that synergism falls into Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, yet in most openly synergistic systems, and I have to say stuff like that, like most, because you never know. There's, there's so many different things out there nowadays. But in most openly synergistic systems, this is denied. And instead, it is said that the synergism or cooperation is merely man's free response to God's grace. Essentially, it is an active acceptance of God's grace rather than rejecting God's grace. So it's not two equals. Man has no power to do it all on his own but it is man responding to the power of God. And so that two equals mentality needs to kind of go out the window. Now there are, again, because there's so many different views out there nowadays, there are these views that are more similar to Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. We'll get to that in a little bit. So if synergism is taken to mean something like man wills enough and then is regenerated, this is incorrect. And it indeed falls into semi-Pelagianism, which we will get to. I've been using that term quite a bit. We're going to explain it. And that's one of the ones that really gets um, important for discussions. So the bottom line here is that synergism typically or within sound doctrine does not call for two equal powers working for man's conversion or salvation. Now, there's still difficulty though, because we can end up in a conundrum if we utilize the terms monergism and synergism, if we take two systems that speak similarly and compare them. Now, please hear me before I say this. I have spoken to both of these groups and I'm not saying that they're one way or another. I'm not saying that X is Y or that, you know, Z is Y. I am just saying that because of how similarly they speak, it makes these categories strained, I guess and can affect how they're viewed, right? So the two systems I'm going to be using for my example are Lutheranism and classical Arminianism, which I'm going to say right out the gate, there are sound Lutherans, conservative Lutherans, and there are sound classical Arminians, and they're just, they're, they're muddied in the pit of all the, the modern progressive stuff that has kind of become prevalent. Everyone's fighting those issues today, it seems like, but that's just to say that those are what I have in mind. We're talking historic conservative Lutheranism and classical historic conservative Arminianism. So anyway, let's talk about how, how they view monergism and synergism. Lutheranism avoids synergism by stating that man passively receives God's grace. And this is contrary to actively accepting God's grace. There's nothing man does, he just passively receives God's grace at conversion. But in Lutheranism, man can actively reject God's grace. Therefore, they would claim to be monergistic because to be saved, it's still all the active work of God in the passive work of man towards salvation, but the active work of man in the rejection of God's grace. So repeating it again, for Lutheranism, because man passively receives God's grace, he does nothing to cooperate with grace for conversion. There is no active cooperation leading to salvation or conversion. The problem is, aside from, I mean, honestly, 
if I if I give my opinion, the problem of baptismal regeneration and the choice to move towards the baptismal fount as an adult. Um, the problem is that classical Arminianism makes similar claims, yet are considered typically synergistic. So, um, looking briefly, which may be a bit premature, at classical or reformed Arminianism, which we will flesh out later on. So if those terms are kind of like, what, reformed Arminian? Uh, we'll talk about that later. Matthew Pinson, in his 40 questions about Arminianism, states at length, quote, One main concern that Calvinists have with Arminianism is that it constitutes synergism, which means working together. Thus, they say, rather than regeneration being monergistic, a work of God alone, Arminian theology makes it synergistic. Somehow, they say, Arminians believe that people are working together or cooperating with God to bring about their salvation. Many Arminians, while they would disagree with the above characterization, still use the term synergism, but reformed Arminians, such as Thomas Helways, Thomas Grantham, and Arminius himself, would not have wanted to be called synergists. Now, uh, Penson, quoting Carl Bangs, points out that, quote, Although Arminius speaks of cooperation, it is not co-earning, as has been pointed out. The cooperation is the result of renewal, not a means towards it, end quote. Penson continues to point out that if we are to say that synergism cannot be attributed to Melanchthon's passive reception of merit, that is, uh, Melanchthon was a Lutheran who was closely tied to Luther, then Arminianism cannot be considered synergistic either as they find agreement there. One disclaimer for my, my Lutheran brothers and sisters is that um, Melanchthon's relationship to Luther is debated by whether or not he was faithful to the original um, articulations of Luther and so on and so forth. And so that's that's something to be aware of and to think about before engaging with a Lutheran or talking with them. Anyway, he states, quote, Arminians who avoid the label are much like the Lutheran theologians. Despite the fact that many modern scholars neatly divide Lutherans into monergistic and synergistic camps, no good Lutheran ever wanted to be known as a synergist. And, quote, early modern Lutherans and their descendants strongly demurred from the label synergist that their opponents placed on them. They believed that divine grace could be resisted even after conversion and that one can fall from grace, yet they strenuously contended that they were not synergists, end quote. So, while the conversation could go much deeper than this, the, the ultimate point being, and hopefully you can see my point here, is that these terms are difficult um, in terms of putting them into practice, especially whenever we start talking about Calvinism versus other positions. Um, and so that being said, these terms won't be utilized very much. If I do, it'll be out of habit. Uh, and I'm going to try to avoid them. It's kind of hard to avoid them, to be honest. But regardless, what needs to be understood and this is crucial, is that semi-Pelagianism is synergistic. Semi-Pelagianism is synergistic, but not all synergistic systems are semi-Pelagianism. This is crucial. And it's going to be a major point in terms of knocking down straw men that people in my camp put forward. So in this series, I'm going to classify groups based off of these categories. Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, resistible grace, and irresistible grace. I find that categorization so much easier, or it at least makes the lines a little bit more clear because, again, even like whenever you're talking 
Calvinists versus non-Calvinists and how Calvinists speak about, well, we're actually the monergists because we believe that God actually does everything alone and that man can't even lose salvation, right? Because man will persevere because it's God's will, etc. And then that kind of be well, my monergism is actually monergism, yours is not. And that, that just becomes unhelpful. <laughs> and so that that's that that's a thing. Um so that's gonna wrap up this episode. I don't want to start the next section because we're already at the 25 minute mark, roughly. Um, and in our next section, we are going to be talking semi-Pelagianism and Reformation history. So we're talking semi-Pelagianism, Reformation history, Luther in brief, because remember, he's not our focus. We're going to talk about Calvin and Arminius, which really is less about Calvin and more about um, his successor, Theodore Beza. And then we will wrap up our historical points of interest. So three episodes, that's not bad. After the three episodes, we will have our glossary, just summarizing these terms, I think, which will be a short episode. And then I will probably post the same week. The next episode beginning with total depravity, which will begin with original sin. So I hope that this is so far helpful or interesting. I know that the historical section is hit or miss with some folk, but that's it for today. I hope you guys have a wonderful wonderful weekend.